Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The proper and timely treatment of legitimate chronic pain is one of medicine's mandates. Karen Olson is a psychologist in Oregon who has written about this challenge and recently wrote two articles about two groups of patients, namely the children and adolescents with pain, and then the elderly who suffer with and from pain. Since treating each of these groups has some unique qualities, we invited him to speak to us about them, and he kindly agreed. Dr. Olson, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Abby. Though it seems incredulous at times, how is it that it was once thought that young children were incapable of having pain? I mean, they wouldn't even get pain medicines after surgery. Could you give us a little history, please? Let's go back a ways. It was felt that if the nervous system wasn't well-developed, that a child could not experience pain. And, of course, today we know that's not true. With advanced imaging and newer techniques, we know that children can experience pain at a very early age. Is there a general sense about how common daily chronic pain is in children? And I I want to just throw into that, is there a difference between children and adolescents? There is. A thing I'd like to mention at the outset is that you've got to be careful not to overgeneralize because there's a wide range of variability within children and adolescents. So it's hard to kind of group them together say they all experience this at a certain time. So let's look at some of the specifics. I mean, we know the kids suffer from, they break their bones, they have accidents, that's one level of pain. Then you have the very sad set of cases of kids who have cancer and debilitating diseases. Is there a hesitancy sometimes to treat the kids legitimately who have the acute pain? Or they just say, you'll be better, don't take any medicine. Do we see that or is even that changing? Well, I I think considering acute pain, which is, as you know, time limited, I think there's probably more credibility with that. I hate to kind of use that word, but it's more believable, especially after a surgery. And I think now that there's a greater awareness of that. When I was up at the medical school, I was in the Department of Anesthesiology and worked with very good pediatric anesthesiologists who were very, very proactive and that's changed in the last 20 to 30 years. Okay, and I'm glad to hear that. Is it countered, unfortunately, by this almost, I'll use the word paranoia, about inappropriately, especially treating children with narcotics? Is that part of the issue, or is it just the general sense that they don't need as much pain intervention? I think there is some of that. I think there's there's always that fear of addiction starting a young child, opioid-based medicine, and which could result in not only a physical dependency, but a psychological dependency. Do the types of pain syndromes that kids have, I mean, we'll get to the elderly later, but when we get older, we have such things as arthritis. Are there any more common disease entities that cause pain in children than others? Do we have any statistics to that effect? Yes, it appears that the two most prominent forms of pain in children, one headache and the other abdominal or muscular types of pain, and they have kind of a common thread. They both are certainly tied to sympathetic reactivity. The more anxious the child is, he's at a higher risk for pain, and I think that has to do with the sympathetic reactivity. If a child is more anxious, it feeds into the whole notion that there may be some psychosomatic component. How do we delineate between the psychiatric and the the real physical pain? Here's where we get into an interesting area. If you go way back, 17th century, 
and you follow the thinking of Rene Descartes, who believed that the body and the mind were not connected. And that dualistic kind of thinking is still with us today. There are, there are a lot of physicians out there who believe that, one, if they can cut out the pain generator or deaden the pain generator, the pain will go away. Unfortunately, the research does not support that position. In 1965, Melzack and Wall published their gate control theory, which brings in the whole area of motivation or cognitive or higher neocortical influences, which we now know is substantiated, especially through more advanced kind of imaging techniques. So the, the old dualistic notion, even though it's still out there, doesn't really hold credibility. At least from my perspective, I don't separate the two. I think they're one and the same. It's not an either-or kind of thinking. It's, yes, they have pain, they have depression, or they have anxiety, and it's all part of the package. I don't know if that makes sense No, it does. It, it, it's an important piece. A lot of people become too symptom-oriented. Don't yeah. look at the, they, they don't look at the gestalt of this child's life, the maladaptive issues at home, what it's like with the parents, and those sort of things. I know it sounds very obvious, but very often when I see a youngster who has pain, the question is, well, what else is going on in their life? Unless, of course, there's a major medical issue. Right. How extensive is the protocol in working up the diagnosis of a chronic pain syndrome in a child? Is there a standard method that's done? It depends on the setting, depends on the location. I was recruited in 1989 to help start the pain management program at Oregon Health Sciences University. There we, we had the luxury of a multidisciplinary approach. We had many disciplines all kind of evaluating and treating the pain patient, whether it's adult or a child, which I feel is the strongest model. Now, if that child ended up in some rural area where possibly the only provider was his primary care physician, then it's a whole different kind of ball of wax. What do we tell a parent to do? Do they have to travel to an academic center? Or are they if, kind of stuck? If it's serious enough, I think they need to travel. But in Oregon now, we have this whole rural medicine initiative. I don't know how you do it down in Florida, but rural physicians now have access to the medical center through telemedicine. And that's a huge, huge benefit for that rural doctor. It's growing down here. It's taking off in ways that we are still not sure how good it is or how bad it is because it's better than nothing to be sure. It still sometimes can remove that intimacy, so to speak, of a face-to-face -face conversation with the patient. Telemedicine is going to be very powerful, however it evolves out in the next 10, 15 years, to be sure, if not earlier. Yeah. Is there a different approach as we go up a little bit in age, as we go into adolescence? As I mentioned in my article, and this has, I guess, been a bias of mine for a long time, is that if I work with a child or an adolescent, uh, depending upon the age of the adolescent, I require the participation of the parents, whether it be one parent or both parents. And, and that's the requirement that I hold to. If the parent is not willing to participate, then I'm not going to waste my time or their time. Because you need, the, obviously, the gestalt. You need the, the full connection. Yeah. What I do is kind of the protocol I follow is parent has to sit in and participate. So if I'm talking about pain or teaching the child a technique, the parent has to learn the technique also. That way they can go home, practice in their own home environment, and it helps with generalization. I think that's critical. Would one of the techniques, for example, be biofeedback 
or muscle relaxation or imagery issues? What would you use? I, I realize it varies with the individual case, but... Um, right. I have and I do. The youngest child that I can remember that I treated presented with chronic head pain. She was eight years old and the parents were very cooperative and sat in and the child was very curious and inquisitive and wanted to know how her body worked. She was kind of like the ideal patient and she kind of took to it like a duck to water and did very well. I use all of those techniques. Again, I have kind of an algorithm I follow. I start off with just the basic kind of understanding of how the body and the mind are hooked together. We introduce breathing techniques, diaphragmatic breathing techniques, might introduce visualization if the child can do that. And children generally have vivid imaginations, as you know, and, and so this is usually fun stuff for them. And then I've used a, a lot of biofeedback modalities over the years, and I've come down to, especially with headaches, I've come down to temperature headache because, as you know, the sympathetic nervous system controls our vasculature. And so typically these kids who have headache are cold in the extremity, which has to do with peripheral blood flow. We're not measuring core temperature. This is peripheral blood flow. And attach a thermistor to their hand, which, again, they see as kind of like a fun kind of game. And we kind of like get in, okay, I want to see if you can raise this temperature a degree or two. We'll start off with this basic relaxation techniques, progressive relaxation, or what used to be called the Jacobson technique. They do well with that. We can go into more advanced forms of using imagery and visualization and self-raising. It works, but it depends. You have to be very careful, and you have to work with a very specific type of child. It doesn't work for all of them. And for the kids that it doesn't work for, do you have a backup plan? Is there something else that can be done? I realize that's, that's a challenge. The, the focus shifts more to the parents. Long the parents are interested in, in dealing with how they should react to their pain, maybe some of the things that they can do with the child while they're having a headache, or just even before they have their head pain, some of the kind of things that they can practice, not to over-attend, not to catastrophize, you know, just good, basic, solid kind of mental health stuff. I could imagine someone listening into this who might be the skeptic and say that actually what we're looking at is psychosomatic pain, it's psychology, it's not medicine. Your thoughts on, on that sort of comment? And this goes back to that dualistic notion that it's an either-or thing, and I don't see it as that. I, if a child is having headaches, it's real. It's real to the child. It's real to the parents. It's a serious issue. And I don't say, okay, well, your child's depressed, so he needs to be treated for depression and not the head pain. I kind of see it as a multidisciplinary combination of both. I'm not opposed to medicine for children, but I think it has to be used very, very carefully. There's some articles out there by Dr. Diamond, who I think was in the same issue that my article was in, and he outlines all of the medicine, so on and so forth. It's a very, very slippery slope, and you want to be very careful and select the child carefully to make sure that there is no potential for abuse. I completely agree. Question in terms of availability. How easy is it for a child where you live, or maybe throughout the United States, to get to a psychologist to get this type of help? How available are these techniques? Well, in Portland, I could almost say we're almost overly saturated. I don't know about Florida, but that changes dramatically once you get away from the metropolitan area. 
So if you get into the rural areas, it's very rare, but in the Portland area, it's very available. When I came to Portland in 89, I believe there was one other pain psychologist, and that made two of us. Now there's probably a couple of dozen who exclusively practice pain. It's wonderful because I know that we don't have the ready access that we need down here, although there are a few, but there are not a lot, at least not to my knowledge. So let's let's move ahead because we're talking about the two groups that need a little bit more, perhaps a different level of attention. Let's go to the elderly person, the person who, you know, we get older, we have arthritis, we have other conditions, we live with pain. What if there is a statistic that is reasonably reliable? How many people over the age of 65 have some sort of significant pain, enough that they need treatment? Do we have data? In my article, I cited a fairly well-done study that would suggest that it's probably in the range of 60 to 70 percent older adults experience persistent or recurrent pain. I want to draw your attention to a recent, very, very well-done survey by the Institute of Medicine. And by the way, this is available online. That was done in 2012, I believe. What it showed was that approximately 111 million individuals in the U.S. experience chronic or recurrent pain. That's a huge number. That's one-third of the population, adults, children, experience pain. Now, if you include people who live with them, their caretakers, their parents, whatever, the number even goes higher. It is a very, very huge phenomenon right now. As we get older, that statistic goes higher. And I can speak personally. (laughs) When we're older, interestingly, at least from the way I I see things, we've also not just brought the pain to this particular phase of our life, but a whole background of cultural, religious, financial, philosophic temperaments that all complicate it. Again, where does the psychologist come in on this versus going and, and taking a medication? My bias comes out, especially when you're dealing with a child or an older adult, if it's available. You need to approach this from a multidisciplinary point of view because, the, as you know, the, the physician today is so overwhelmed. I think the average visit now is somewhere around 11 minutes. No way can you treat adequately someone with a complex pain issue. So you need other people who have the training, have the time to actually work with it as a team. Not as an either-or phenomena, which unfortunately still happens. I'll get referrals where the physician or the surgeon has done their thing. And they say, well, I can do no more for you. Go, go see Olson. He'll fix you up. And that's, <laughs> to me, that's the worst referral because I would rather get in early in that process as opposed to, okay, I can't do anything more for you. Here, go see the pain psychologist. I remember many years ago, a man who had a stomach cancer was in a lot of pain. He came from an Eastern European family. The doctors, oh, this must be 30 years ago now, so it was a little bit of a different world, but the doctors kept wanting him to take some pain medicines, and he said, no, I don't need it. I don't need it, even though you can clearly see he was in pain, because his temperament was that he wasn't going to accept treatment. He was going to tough it out. I would imagine you see a whole sundry of these things when you see someone who's older. Yes. You know, think back. My parents, they went through a world war. They went through the Great Depression. It was a whole different mindset back then. And they didn't have the luxury. They thought going to the doctor was the least important things in their life. And so you still have that mentality with the older adult. Very stoic. No, I don't need this. And 
I can suffer through this. Not uncommon. And if you add the particular issue of dementia and pain, one of the techniques that you need, that I need, that so many doctors need, is that the patient has to be able to articulate the pain. And of course, sometimes that's not possible. How do you approach someone whose dementia is such that they really can't express their feelings? That's got to be a huge challenge. Yeah, it is. I think I cited a study in my article that showed that Alzheimer's patients still experience pain, it's just they probably express it or interpret it a different way. So just because you have significant dementia doesn't mean that the patient is not actually experiencing that pain. It's just that they have a different way of expressing it. The other point, and I don't know how you feel about this. I'd love to get your opinion on this. I think dementia or memory loss is somewhat protective. It has kind of a protective notion to it that not remembering some of this might have a benefit. I don't know how you feel about that. It's an interesting point because it does reduce a lot of the psychological material that may be coming in to fighting the pain. They're feeling out of control, not feeling out of control. I have seen people that seem to be more indifferent to their pain syndromes because the dementia was so entrenched. I'm sure other doctors might offer even other opinions about it, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I have seen that. There is yeah. And one of the things that we tend to, to not do enough of is in the elderly is to properly treat the depression or the pseudo-depressions, if that's the case. That term is not used much anymore, which can help. They can tell you, but they can tell you more. Can you use biofeedback and other cognitive interventions with the older folks? I've had some success, and again, you have to select the patient carefully. Motivation, being open, curious, certainly are key ingredients, and just because you're old doesn't mean that you can't have those those traits. I, you know, I've treated, I think the oldest fellow I treated, I, and I talked about him in my article, was an 80, 85-year-old farmer who was not well-educated, but he was very interested in how his body worked, and he he didn't like to take medicine. He didn't want to lose control of his body. And I said, well, these techniques will, will, will give you some control. And I said, keep in mind that the two primary ingredients in depression are a sense of hopelessness and a sense of helplessness. And I said, if I can give you some hope that you can use this technique to help control your pain without a pharmaceutical agent, you're going to have more personal control. He liked that idea, and he kind of took to it. We started off with the basic stuff, and he did well with it. He kept wanting more and more and more, and he wanted a deeper, deeper state of relaxation. And he also had a significant sleep issue, which seemed to help with that. And I think that's another issue. I don't know if we have time to talk about it. Sure. We, we can add a few minutes. Go ahead. Sleep and pain go together like a horse and a buggy, not only at a psychological level, but at a molecular level. The more I got into it, the more I found out that the majority of my pain patients had sleep issues, primarily insomnia, although a lot of them would have other sleep issues, but the primary one was insomnia. I joined the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and started going to their meetings and found it fascinating. And so I really started to look at sleep, and when I see an older patient, I evaluate their sleep quality, and if that's part of the issue, which typically it can be, 
I will include that in, in the treatment program. I agree with you entirely on that. I have treated people who unfortunately suffered from significant insomnia. They would use literally every over-the-counter and prescription medication that could be found. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. They'd be on a trial of a multitude of antidepressants. Again, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. There is a new medication on the market that looks as if it has some substantive differences. We just need another six months or a year before we can really talk about it in terms of how it's going to affect the pain community. But I agree, sleep has to be addressed. You know, and go into this just for a second, And but there's a lot of controversy over the use of marijuana. Yep, and it's interesting you should bring that up because October 1st, which I think was, what, yesterday or the day before, marijuana became legal in Oregon on a recreational basis. Of course, we've had medical marijuana for a very long time. Now it, it, it's available uh, recreationally. So the medical marijuana issue is just going to kind of go away since you can buy it legally and you don't need a medical marijuana card. Does it frighten you? You that people in pain will drift too vigorously, too rapidly into self-medicating with marijuana? Well, I've had patients individually, patients who have used marijuana quite effectively. So I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of the physicians I work with will not treat patients if they're using marijuana. I tend to take a little more open view of that. I think it can be a helpful tool as long as it's used appropriately. Of course, marijuana today is very different than back in our days, or they say this is not your parents' marijuana. Yes. It's amazing that they even can grow particular strains of marijuana that seem to be more effective with pain. And as you know, and this has always been kind of a feeling I've had, that marijuana or THC is agonist to our dopamine system. Yes. So what's happening, I think, pharmacologic basis is that you, know, you get a bolus of THC, you're going to get a bolus of dopamine, which, as you know, is, is good for mood, it's, it's good for pain. Exactly. And part of the concern that we have here, and a lot of my physician colleagues have, is that I tell people we're not necessarily against the molecule, we're concerned about the way it's being used. Yeah. And I think you, know, you have to use caution. And one of the big fears out here now is that, well, of course, you have to be 21. But once you open the door for the 21-year-old, are you opening the door for the 17, 18, 18-year-olds? Yes. And I think that going to be remains to be seen, see what happens. There, there are a lot of issues. And I think they're going to be looking at that very carefully in terms of motor vehicle accidents and so on we'll see as it develops, to be sure. Dr. Kern Olson is a psychologist in Oregon. He, Dr. Olson, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure, Abby. Hopefully we get to meet sometime. I'm looking forward to that.